0: Good evening, welcome everyone, it's really a delight to be here, we call this Good Friday and certainly to us that have named the name of Jesus and claim the blood to cleanse our sin, it certainly is a good time to reflect on our good Savior, hallelujah, what a Savior, we just sang. It really is a serious time, though, somewhat of a solemn time. I know the disciples and his followers on that day would not have called it good. But to us, as we look back, because he is no longer hanging on the cross, he is now risen, and and we look back on that Friday afternoon as a good Friday. Open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. I just want one verse. We'll try to keep the opening short and give time to our brother. Isaiah chapter 11. This is a familiar verse. It's often uh, read or quoted at the time of Jesus' birth or as as we celebrate his birth. Many times this prophecy is, is referred to. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And what I want out of that is is the fact that The prophecy that Jesus is that branch in King James or at least in in this printing that word branch is capitalized it is referring to Jesus and get the idea of of a tree being cut off and out of that stump comes a root or a, a, a shoot and the Hebrew meaning of that shoot is netzer, N-E-T-Z-E-R. And that is the Hebrew word here for this word branch. It is that, that shoot that comes up out of that tree that's been cut off. Now, we've always heard and Bible scholars would give us to understand that, that Jesus is that branch that came out of that family of Jesse, and, and this is the prophecy that points to that day. There's also a, an additional meaning that I found just this week that is inspiring to me. Not only is, is Jesus that netzer, that, that shoot that comes out of the family of Jesse, speaking of possibly his birth, But you can recall with me, where where did Jesus grow up? What town did Jesus grow up in? Nazareth. Some of you act like you wasn't real sure about that, but it was Nazareth. The Hebrew meaning for the word Nazareth is Netzer. So the very town that Jesus grew up in was also that shoot. And so this passage not only could be referring to his birth as he sprouts up out of the the tribe or the family of Jesse, but he also grew. He grew in the town of Nazareth. Um, And then we know, and it's why we're here tonight, that not only did he grow up out of that tree and, and grow and mature and develop but we know that he also died on the tree and I think it's Peter in the book of Acts around chapter 5 when he is speaking and he talks about Jesus uh, whom you slew and hanged on a tree and so the fact that Jesus is that netzer that, that branch coming out of a tree being born out of the family of Jesse. He also grew in the town of Netzer, Nazareth. And then we also know that he died on a tree. And there we leave him in this opening. We will turn it over to Brother Reuben after prayer. Uh, I think most of you here would know Reuben and Julie. Their family are with us tonight. And we're certainly thankful that he accepted the invitation as we de- dwell on the death and suffering of Jesus Christ. Uh, as many as care to can bow in prayer. Uh, Brother Harlan, I think I'll ask you to stand to your feet if you would and, and lead us in, in a word of prayer.
1: Well, good evening. Thanks for coming out tonight, and greetings in the name of Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. I tend to talk kind of slow, so when Bart talked about 30 or 40-minute message, I just thought that's hoping against hope to, to try to compact the main, the main theme and story of heaven and earth, of all time and history, into a little packet like that. And because I talk slow, a lot of times I run out of time to cover the end point of what I study. So I thought about, well, maybe we should take head for the, the end of the sermon first and preach backwards like the Hebrew text reads from right to left. And so I went to the end of the book, and you go clear to the end of the book in the the last in the Revelation, and you you see the the beast and the elders and the, the multitude which no man can number standing on a sea of glass, and they have harps in their hands, and they're they're saying, uh, crying the praises of him who redeemed them by his blood, and made them kings and priests to God. And then you read there in that book of, a, it's of another book, it says there's a, a book of the life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So over here at the end, you go clear back to the beginning, and you, you open the book of Genesis, and you find there in the beginning, the first man and woman, our parents, all of us, our great-great-grandparents, standing there, the king and queen, of this beautiful creation standing there naked and ashamed, naked except for some pathetic aprons they sewed together, some fig leaf underwear they put on, hiding behind a tree. Their hands and their mouths are stained with forbidden fruit. And the Lord God is talking to them. And and there he's saying... He's actually talking to the serpent, and they're overhearing. They listen, and they hear him tell the serpent who deceived them just after they had pulled the whole world down on top of their heads, basically. You know how it feels because you've done it. I've done it. When when your sin is staring you in the face, and you're ashamed and, and hopeless, and here's the Lord God talking to the, the devil and saying that... Um, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is going to bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And so this story tonight of the cross, it's from beginning to end. And it all, it all really, the, it's like the song says that, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers around its head sublime. Because the the cross is just like the, the center point of everything. It's like the, the powerhouse of, of what of how God works in relating to people like us. And so we're going to try to look at the, the light of sacred story from. Just kind of catch a few of the high points from the beginning of, of the story up to the cross and then what it means to God, what it means to the devil, what it means to you and me as we look at the, at the crucified Christ. So the first thing we're going to look at is this Protevangelium. evangelium now what's that? That just means the gospel preached beforehand. And I already said that. So that one's done. It's when the, when the um, Lord was talking to the serpent and, and our grandparents heard him say that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And it's a bruising that's going to end up crushing the serpent. And so you think, right off the bat, even when things are so dark and hopeless looking and creation is cursed and under a, a, a groaning terror now because sin has entered the world and death is engaged and, and if Adam and Eve could even glimpse at the, the streets of Dayton or New York City or the, the hidden places of darkness where the cruelty and the ugliness of our sin goes on. I think it'd drive them to despair. But right there at that point, they hear the Lord saying that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so there's hope. Right, out the, right off the bat, there's hope when the gospel was preached beforehand there to uh, Adam and Eve. The next thing we want to look at is the coats of skin. They were, they were standing there naked, and now they're ashamed because sin had entered their world. And so they, they tried covering themselves with these fig leaves. But it says that before the Lord sent them out of the garden, it says He, he made coats of skin and He clothed them. And so He, he takes their nakedness and He covers them with, with this, uh, it's like a garment or some kind of long coat, that, a tunic that covered them. But it says He made it out of skin. And then he put it on them. I just picture the, the hands of God just covering his son, his daughter, covering them up from their shame. But over here on the side is where that skin came from. It had to come from somewhere, I, I assume, unless God just made it off right out of nothing. But I assume he killed a couple animals. And so here are some innocent animals, bleeding dead, and their skin is taken, made into leather, made into some nice hand-fashioned garments for Adam and Eve to wear. But there's that innocent animal over on the side, who now, his skin and coat is now covering someone else who needed covered. And so you see the light of this sacred story gathering there. You move forward in the story, um, I don't know what maybe a thousand years or so Abraham is finally he finally has his beloved son Isaac and Isaac is we don't know maybe a teenager maybe 20 30 years old and the Lord comes to Abraham and talks to him about it says he tested him and tried him and said take now your son your beloved, your only son, and take him to a place where I'm going to show you and offer him there as a burnt offering. And Moses had waited and waited and connived different ways. And finally, this son of promise had come that was precious beyond words. And yet now God is asking him to take this only son and offer him on the altar at a place where he'll show him. So Abraham gets up early in the morning they load up the supplies, and Abraham and his son head off. And it was about a three days, three days later, and I'm amazed at how many times through this story, the third day is where something big happens. Three days later on this journey, Abraham looks up, and he sees afar off the place where God had showed him. And so he gets the wood, and he gets the fire, and he puts the wood on the back of Isaac, and, and uh, Isaac and Abraham, father and son, began walking along together. We will worship, he said. He told his helpers that had taken the trip with him. We're, uh, my son and I, we're going to go up to worship, and then we will return. We will return. He, he's, he expects Isaac to come back with him, but he's going to offer him on, a sac- on the altar. And the, the writer to Hebrews says that uh, it was in this way that he, he expected um, a resurrection, basically. He, he knew that God was able to do something miraculous here because he knew this was the son of the promise, but he, he was committed in faith and he went through with it. So they go up the hill. Here's the, the young man with the wood on his back going up a hill at the place where God had showed Abraham this was to happen, Mount Moriah. And Isaac says, my father, there's fire and wood, but where's the lamb for the offering? And, and Abraham says, um, my son, God will provide, God himself will provide a lamb for the offering. He just leaves it at that. God will provide a lamb for the offering. Well, you know the story probably. They they bound he bound Isaac, tied him up. Isaac is laid out there on the wood and Abraham has the knife and he's about to follow through with this, this test. When the angel of the Lord says, "Abraham, Abraham, spare your son. I know now that you're going to that your your heart is true, your faith is is secure in me. You don't have to kill the boy." And behold, over in the thicket, in the, the, where the branches were all twisted together, there was a ram caught there. And so they took the ram, and the, the Bible says that Abraham offered the ram in the place of his son. And so Isaac, you can imagine, is the relief, and Abraham too, the relief is off the charts that somebody took my place, somebody took my son's place here. So out of the thicket of woven branches was the replacement, the substitute found. So you see a bunch of things here in this story. The absolute devotion of, of Abraham. You see the loving heart of a father toward a son. And you, you can't help but feel that. If you're a dad or if you have a dad or if you're, a, if, if you're in a family at all, you, you read this story and, and you just... You feel the the tearing and the the trauma that's going on in Abraham's heart. And yet the the faith that he had in God's power that went beyond what was normal. And then the great relief of a substitute. And then don't miss the fact that, like sometimes people will take this story and they'll get all uh, upset because they, they think this is somehow... Uh, reflecting barbaric practices of child sacrifice and stuff. Well, that's not the point of this at all. Uh, God never even thought of doing that, he said in the prophets, of offering your children up like that. What God was doing was painting a picture to stamp into the, the emotional imprint of his people of a, father, a father's heart giving a son at a particular place, three times it says, at a place where I will show you, and that place happened to be Mount Moriah, which, as history moved on, turned into be the place where the city Jerusalem was built, not far at all in the same mountain range of a place called Calvary. So here's, here's Isaac and his son, a, the seed of the woman, a son of Abraham, going up a hill with wood on his back, Headed toward a place of sacrifice. Does that ring any bells? And then the actual offering was found encircled and twisted branches. And I can't help but think of some soldiers a long time later that took a branches from a thorn and wove a crown of thorns and wrapped it around the head of another son of Abraham. And the the amazing thing about this is it says there in in Genesis 22 that it kind of ends up that portion of the story saying that uh, Abraham named the place and he named it Jehovah-Jireh. And let's see. So Genesis 22, verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide or Yahweh, Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be seen, or it will be provided. Well, so apparently from, the, from Abraham and his children and grandchildren all the way down through to when, this, when the Bible was written and moved on, it, there was this saying that in the mount of the Lord it will be provided, or in the mount of the Lord it will be seen. What will be seen? What will be provided? Well, the, the question was still hanging in the air when that Isaac had said, where's the, the lamb for the offering? And Abraham had said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering, my son. That's what it is. In the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. Where do you see God providing himself the lamb for the offering? In the mount of the Lord, right there on the... On, uh, Mount Moriah outside the city gates of Jerusalem on a a crooked tree wrapped in twisted branches. The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. It's amazing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The Passover and the Exodus. So 400 and some years later, Abraham's descendants are in slavery to Pharaoh down in Egypt. Nine devastating plagues came against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and and the gods that he represented. But none of them had shaken loose the grip that he had on these people. He was afraid of losing his manpower, afraid of their opposition, and so while he still had the power, he was going to keep it no matter what. No matter what this Moses and Aaron, these magician guys that came back into town, and they're putting rods down and turning into snakes and they're doing all kinds of magical, plague-like things and it's not going to shake Pharaoh at all. He's not going to let the people go. In, in Exodus 11, um, Moses goes in there and talks to him. Exodus eleven four, Moses says, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight I'm going to go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there will be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Well, Pharaoh's heart, even hearing this warning, his heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. And so Moses went to his people, and he said, okay, this is the word from the Lord. This is what's going to happen. It, um, what you all Israelites need to do is take a lamb, on the 10th day of this month, you take a lamb, an unblemished one. Keep it till the 14th day. And then on the 14th day at twilight, every, the whole congregation is going to kill their lamb at around the same time. And then a strange thing, but you're going to take its blood on a hyssop branch, which is like a, er, an herb that grows. You're going to take some hyssop branches, dip it in the blood of this lamb that you killed, Strike it up on the, on the wooden post on the, this side of your door, over on this side of the door, and across the top. Put blood there. What is going on? He said, take the rest of the lamb and, and you eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and you eat it in a hurry. You've got your shoes on and you're, you're dressed, ready to go, and you eat this thing in a hurry because tonight is going to be the Passover. Because uh, the Lord said, I will go through all the land and smite the firstborn, and I'm going to execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. But I will pass over any house that has that blood on the door. And so, so the de- he said, when the destroyer comes through there, if you're in a house where the blood is on the, on the doorpost, you're safe. Nothing will happen to you. Your firstborn son is safe. Your firstborn daughter, your, your household is safe behind that, that blood-stained uh, doorpost and lintel. Israel and the firstborn children can rest safely tonight, covered by the blood of an innocent lamb, sheltered, secure behind a vertical and horizontal post of wood with blood applied thereon. But, he said, get ready because you're about to leave here and enter basically a whole new world because you're going to the promised land. Thousands of years later, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus says, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And Paul, the apostle says, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So, you know, you've heard the word Passover all your life, if you're like me. And it, it becomes just a, a word you hear. But I remember when it struck me that it, it means what it says, that he's passing over. Like he's coming with, with judgment and destruction, but behind that blood, he'll pass right over you. He'll, he'll go over. the. If it's not how good you've been, how bad you've been, what you've done, it's whether you're behind that blood the destroyer will pass right over the person behind that blood. And uh, Paul said, Christ our Passover, so he made that connection very straight. Um, And and John, and I think it's in John's gospel, when he was talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, he said, um, they didn't break his bones. The soul, it was typical on a crucifixion, they'd come along and break the, the leg bones so the victim would slump down and finally not be able to push themselves up to get another breath. They'd break the bones so the guy would finally die after having hung there in torment for so long. But they got to Jesus and they didn't break his bones. And John says that the reason was is because the scripture said, "...a bone of him shall not be broken." Well, I think there is a reference to that in this one of the Psalms, but it's also pointing back to this Passover lamb because when Moses and God told him to, make this, to kill this lamb and butcher it a certain way and eat it a certain way, they, he also said, don't break any of its bones. Well, the final lamb, the final Passover lamb killed the lamb who gave himself to be eaten. He says, my flesh is... Me indeed, my blood is drink indeed. Drink you and eat of me. There he is on the cross and his bones aren't broken. So this is about the Passover and also the Exodus. I was surprised to see when, when Jesus, you remember that one time he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, we call it, when he met with Moses and Elijah. And there he was talking to them, and I think it's Luke, Luke nine thirty one. It says that he spake of the decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what he was talking about when he talked to Moses and Elijah up there. And if you look at that word decease, some translations will say the departure. If you're reading it in, your, in a Greek, like the way Luke would have written it, it would, it would say that he spoke about the exodon that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. So he, he's leading up to a new exodus. He's talking about achieving deliverance for his people out from under the, the bondage of sin and the, the sting of death. He's going to pull these people out and shelter them by his blood and take them to a new life. So, Uh, God passes over those who live behind the blood-stained cross. Their enemies are drowned in a sea of red, and a new life in the promises of God awaits you. So the people of God left there, went through the Red Sea, the enemies are destroyed in the water behind them, and now it's a new day waiting, and they're headed for the promised land. Well, I Shortly after this, um, let's see, it's in Exodus, Uh, it's disappearing on me now. Oh, here it is. End of chapter fifteen. Moses. In verse 22, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days, there's three days again, three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. They came to Marah. They could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Here's another tree thing going on. The Lord showed him a tree, and Moses took the tree, he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So, I don't know how that happened. I don't know, and uh, God told him there that he said, I the Lord am your healer. I am Yahweh Rapha, the healer. I am your healer. So I don't know how that tree that Moses put in the water did anything for the water. It seems a miracle. But it, it points to another tree where the Lord our healer himself hung there. And he hung on that tree. And every, time, every bitter thing that comes in your life and mine can be sweetened when you know that the, the Savior has walked that path with you. When you know that that Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, totally gets the the bitter pill you've had to swallow. Even today, bitter dregs are often taken by God's people. Sharp, emotional wounds which find no sweetness at all until it's known that Jesus bore this on the cross. There was a man named uh, Edward Shalito. And he, he witnessed a lot of damage and carnage in World War I. And he found comfort in the fact Jesus was able to show his disciples the scars of his crucifixion. It inspired him to write this poem, Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn marks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we know thy grace. If when the doors are shut thou drawest near, only reveal those hands that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Moses named the place, or I don't know if he named it, the, the name of that bitter pool turned sweet was called Mara. Because mar in, in those ancient languages meant bitter. And so did myrrh that was brought to Jesus at his birth. And so did the name of his mother was Mary, which also comes from that root. And then also the, the ladies who went on the tomb three days after his death. There were at least two, maybe three ladies named Mary that come trying to find the the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. Three bitter named people that found sweetness because Jesus is no longer on that tree, but He's alive forevermore. Moving on, the bitter was made sweet by a tree. A bronze serpent lifted up to heal. Out there in the wilderness, the, the people start grumbling and complaining, and they're impatient with Moses. and God chastises them by sending poisonous, fiery serpents into their midst, biting people, and people are dying right and left. Moses intercedes, and God says the strangest thing. He says, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard. Whoever is bitten, when he looks on it, he will live. So there was the command from God to Moses. Make the serpent, Put it up on a pole. When people look on it, they will live. And the very next verse says, So Moses made a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole. And whenever anyone looked at it, they lived. And it was like God said this is what would happen. This is exactly what happened. I don't understand how it happened. But God was clear and faithful. And the interceder did his job. And the promise came true. When he looked... He lived. And then Jesus in John 3 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it's the same way today. God is faithful. Jesus did His job. Believe in Him, and you will live. That's how it works. That's that's the way you can trust God. <clears throat> the Israelites moved on past that. And on their entrance into the promised land, here's the walled city of Jericho. And the, the spies go in there, and they stayed the first night at a harlot's house that was built into the city wall. What they were doing there, I don't know. I, it doesn't seem like the best place to stay for the spies sent out on a mission of God. Whatever their motives were for going to the harlot's house, it, it didn't turn out, I don't think, at all how they expected. She hid them. She covered for them. When, when the people came who were uh, wanting to find these spies and kill them, basically, because they, they caught word that some spies of Israel were in town, she hid them. And then uh, after the, the pursuers had left the house, the men said, told her what was going to happen. They said, uh, you know, this city's going to be destroyed. But if you take a cord of scarlet thread, hang it out this window, if you'll let us down this window first, then when we're gone, you hang this cord of scarlet thread, and when, when we come back in, and when God, the Lord of armies, comes and destroys this place, if that scarlet thread is hanging there, this house and anyone in the house will be protected. So now, she said, you go. You guys get out of here. Go three days. Go three days down the road and until the pursuers get tired of looking for you, and then you'll be safe. And so that's how it happened. Exactly like that. They came back. I don't know. It was, it was I think maybe a week or two later, they came back and you know the story where the Israelites marched around Jericho for seven days and then blew the trumpets and the walls fell down, all of them except this one tower and I just have heard archaeological evidence. They say there is that part of the tower there of the wall where everything else slid down around it but that part stood because there was a scarlet cord hanging out the window. What's a scarlet cord have power to stop an earthquake blast from breaking up a wall? Well, a scarlet cord does nothing, but God looks at that cord and he knows the faith of a prostitute that hung it there, and he knows that she's going to be protected by his grace. And that cord, what's so amazing is the Bible says that Rahab, this prostitute, ended up marrying um, I forget the guy she married, but her son was Boaz. And Boaz, later on, had a son, Obed. And Obed had a son, Jesse, that Bart talked about. And Jesse had a son, David. And David, the king of Israel, is, is who Jesus was often talked about as the son of David. He, anyhow, Rahab became a direct uh, ancestor of the Messiah who would come whose blood would protect all of us who believe in Him. So there's that scarlet thread in Rahab's window. And now we get to Psalm 22. Jesus said this on the cross Himself. You heard Him say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That awful cry of dereliction. The most, Haunting, scary, dark, fearful thing that you could imagine. Forsaken by God. And yet Jesus wasn't just whipping this up at the moment. It was, it was something that King David had written 1,500 or several thousand years beforehand. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people think that he might have, Jesus might have even been muttering the, the entire words of this psalm while He hung there on the cross. And you can see why. If you read this psalm, it's like the, the heart of Jesus is peeled open and you look inside there and you can kind of tell what He's feeling, what He's thinking, what's going on as He hangs there on the cross. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They Separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver him. Let Him rescue him because He delights in him. So Jesus is, I mean, David is writing this so far ahead, but the Holy Spirit is is pouring somehow into David's pen the emotions and the thoughts and the experience of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's so much here to point out and we won't get to hardly any of it, but I do want to look at verse 6 where David writes and Jesus through the Spirit is saying, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. The word here in Hebrew is tola, and it it refers to a, a female worm that is a special worm. I think there's other wor- other Hebrew words for worms, but this is a very particular worm. They used to call it the coccus illicus, and in today's uh, Latin um, terminology, it's called kermes vermilio. And if you do any painting or artwork, you might recognize um, both Coccus and vermilio. Like vermilion is a is a shade of red. And here's the thing about this little worm. It, it lives on the Kermes oak tree, which is also has to do with the word carmen, which is another shade of red. And this little worm, it attaches to the oak tree when it's getting ready to die. It, it, goes, it finds the host tree and it sticks tight. It like glues itself there. And this little worm that is the specific word that is in this psalm, it forms a little hard shell over itself. It looks kind of like a scale insect, if you've seen scale on, on plants. So it, it forms this little hard shell, and then it lays its eggs. And it seems kind of gross thinking about worms and eggs and stuff. But it's got these little worms hatch inside of it, and they actually feed on the, on the mother. So the mother, in this case, is protecting it with this little shield and they're feeding as the mother worm dies. The little worms are growing and feeding. Well then, if you happen, uh, well if you would smash it, or even after, if you don't smash it, this worm, when it dies and it's done, it, it like bleeds red out down the tree. There's, there's a red stain on the tree, on the bark of this oak tree. And from ancient times, even until like several hundred years ago, this worm itself is is the exact product that was very valuable because they used it to make dye and made the richest red dye that kings and royalty would dye their garments with. And that's the little worm that Jesus says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. And it's so amazing because... To to the human eye, he looks despicable, marred more than any man. You couldn't even recognize him as a human. He's torn to shreds and hanging there, pinned up on the cross, flies buzzing around, just nasty, ugly, no beauty that we would desire him. And yet, from him is coming that which will will, uh, clothe royalty forever and ever, the The robe of righteousness, the royal robes that the sons and daughters of the king will wear. In this Psalm 22, you see him surrounded by all kinds of beasts. There's the strong bulls of Bashan. There's the dogs, the evildoers, the lion's mouth, the wild oxen or the unicorn. All these are surrounding him. And I just I think this is an image of the demonic hordes. The, the fury and the, the, the pits of hell were opened up in, in anger and wrath, trying to do their best to, to eat this man alive. His strength dries up. He says, they pierced my hands and my feet. David would have never seen a crucifixion. It wasn't even invented yet. But he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. They divided my garment. They cast lots for my clothing. But it's not all bad. There's a turning point, and he says, in verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I believe he's here tonight. When we're singing, Jesus is leading. He's leading the song of praise. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. He says in uh, verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is Yahweh's, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those that go down to the dust will bow before Him. So even from the cross, He's, he's rehearsing these words of Psalm 22. He sees and feels where He's at now but he knows what's coming. He knows the end result is that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before him. There's Psalm 69, which we can't look at now much, but he's sinking deep in sin there. He's sinking deep with the waters going over. He's restoring what he didn't steal. He says, uh, there's reproach coming my way, but there's no comfort, no sympathy. And he says there, they gave me vinegar to drink. But then out of the vinegar again comes victory. He says, I will sing. And he says, God will save, and heaven and earth will praise. All because of this crucified Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53 We could spend all day there, smitten, stricken, afflicted. And it pleased the Lord to put him to grief. Where he was bruised for our iniquities. And you put your own name in there. Jesus was bruised for Reuben's iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. The law said that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That was a, just a rule in Israel that, that came down through the centuries. God said it. If you hang on a tree, that's clear evidence of being under a curse. Paul picked up that theme and he says to believers, he says, Christ has redeemed us out from under the curse of the law because he was made a curse for us. So there on the cross, Jesus is being made sin. He's being made a curse for us. This is an interesting one. You see back there in the book of Esther where god the word God is never even mentioned at all in Esther. But there is a a villain named uh, Haman. And Haman gets all proud and cocky and builds a gallow. I think it was 50 cubits high. This thing is huge. A gallow of wood built up in the sky, ready to hang his his enemy, Mordecai, who's the good guy, and the tables turn, and the um, in Esther seven ten, I, I just want to read this because it's so short and clear and amazing. Esther seven verse ten. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, or the tree, the side reference says, you could read this, they hanged Haman on the tree which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Does that remind you of anything? Satan, Satan inspires people to crucify. The, the, the mob of, of Jews and the Roman soldiers just foaming at the mouth to kill, kill, kill this son of man. And yet, when they kill him, it's the end of death. It's the crushing of the head of Satan. And it's just like Haman. Haman built the tree, the gallows, for Mordecai, but he ends up getting hanged on it himself. And then Zechariah the prophet told of a day, he said, in that day there will be a fountain opened for the sin and iniquity of the people of Israel. In this fountain we sang about tonight, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And so what's this do for God? It satisfies the justice of God. He will look on the travail of His soul and be satisfied. Like the, in Romans 3, it, it speaks of, of God passing over sins in the past and so you think of when God was merciful to King David when he was merciful to to all these people in the Old Testament who who were awful people and yet they they say they're sorry they repent and God lets them live and God writes them down as the righteous how's that happen is he just a big pushover does he just have a soft heart and just kind of lets things go and and kind of slips them under the rug or sweeps them off to the side. You know, if that's what your thought of thought is about God's mercy, it seems like there's always a nagging wondering like, well, where did those sins go? And, and will, can God bring them up again? And, and is, is He just being soft on me now, but He might switch His mind? Well, Romans... Romans 3 says that God has set forth Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins. And it says that He did this so that He might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. And so God's justice is totally satisfied for those who will believe in Jesus and and hide behind the blood of the cross. The justice is spent. And, And so God's anger will not come on your sin, it came on Jesus at the cross. And God is just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. The spear went in the side of Jesus at the cross and blood and water came out. And it reminds you of, of Adam who the, the Lord put in a deep sleep and opened up his side and brought out a bride to meet him, to be fitting for him. And the blood and water which came out of Jesus' side is what makes us fit and meet to be the bride of Christ, to be with Him forever. The Father's love was made known. The veil of the temple was split from the top to the bottom, initiated from the top, just ripped open. The holiest of holies is open now for for people like us to have open access to the living God. Only the high priest could do that once a year with taking blood in there. It was a risky business to be in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God Almighty. And yet, the veil of that temple is ripped apart from top to bottom, signifying that the way is open now. God has access to you. You have access to God. The heart of God was revealed there. Um. Father, glorify Your name, Jesus said before the cross. And Jesus said, I have done it and I will. I think He was talking about the transfiguration and He's talking about the cross coming up. I will glorify My name and reveal who I really am at the cross. Down below in the depths, the head of the serpent gets crushed. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And the sting of death is removed because someone has passed this way before and came out on the other side. Christ's victory was preached down in the depths of Hades to the the imprisoned spirits. I don't understand all that, but it says that that He went down there and preached to those spirits in prison. I think those were were some of these false gods of the nations, these uh, fallen angels that had messed with men back in the days of Noah. They're bound in, in chains of darkness down there. Christ, having pulled away all the, the accusation, having satisfied the justice of God against sinners, says it is finished. And when He's buried, He's free and a victor to go down there and tell the, tell the demons and the, the powers of darkness that the, your hour and the power of darkness is over. Like it is finished. So there's the great exchange where, and this is where it comes into you and me tonight the the benefits for you, where your sin gets laid on Christ at the cross, and the righteousness of Jesus gets laid over you like that coat that God made to Adam and Eve. My sins are forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like Isaiah was called by God to reason together with him. He said, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's me. I've been scarlet. But in Christ Jesus, I'm whiter than snow. Through this means there's a way for the ungodly to be justified, which is crazy. It doesn't even seem right. God Himself said it's an abomination to justify the ungodly. But yet in Romans, we read that God justifies the ungodly by His grace through the blood of the cross. And He's just in doing it. All the books are right, all the ledgers are are straightened out, and sinners can be saved redeemed from the curse of the law. Now this, I am crucified with Christ. So not just did he take my place, but he invites you and me there to be pinned and nailed to the cross with him, that the the power of sin and the the old way of doing things that you and I have are naturally bent towards, it can be nailed and crucified with Jesus at the cross. So this is This is the power of of destroying sin in your life. That there's actually been something done historically that you can claim and, and walk in with confidence that there can be the power of sin over you does not have the final word. It was crucified with Christ at the cross. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm drawn with others to this point of grace. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. And so people you don't even like, people you disagree with, people you don't get along with, Find common ground at the cross. People you've hurt, people that have hurt you. Jesus bears it all there. So come to the cross. And I know, finally, here in death, I will tread a path that my Savior has been. Like COVID has hit people across the world this year. You're going to die one way or another. You might be closer than you know, or you might be breathing your last and you know it. But with at the cross. There's the comfort to know that God Himself, the Son of God, has been this way before. He's already died. He's already come out on the other side on the third day. And so the sting of death is extracted. And even though it's scary, it may be um, frightful to think about, but you're going there hand in hand with someone that's already been there. To mock your reign, O dearest Lord, they made a crown of thorns, set you with taunts along that road from which no one returns. They did not know, as we do now, that glorious is your crown, that thorns would flower upon your brow. Your sorrows heal our own. In mock acclaim, O gracious Lord, they snatched a purple cloak. Your passion turned, for all they cared, into a soldier's joke. They didn't know, as we do now, that though we merit blame, you will your robe of mercy throw around our naked shame. A sceptered reed, O patient Lord, they thrust into your hand and acted out their grim charade to its appointed end. They did not know, as we do now, though empires rise and fall, your kingdom shall not cease to grow till love embraces all. That was a poem by Fred Green. So can we sing now?
0: standing. Hallelujah. It is finished. Say that with me. It, it is finished. finished. Let's remember that.